Will you please turn in your Bibles to the book of Judges, chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. That's the text this morning. Judges 2, 11 through 15. Before we hear God's word read, let us go again to him, asking for his help in understanding and applying this great text. Our God, we pray that by your Spirit we would see the light of your truth, however difficult it might be as it penetrates our hearts. We pray that you would use your light to expose remaining sin in our hearts, that we might confess it and seek forgiveness from you, our Father, who have compassion on us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. This is Judges 2, verses 11 through 15. Hear now the word of God. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies, so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. And may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. We are far too easily pleased. That is what C.S. Lewis had written about all of humanity, about those who are made in the image of God. We're far too easily pleased. We are more pleased with making mud pies than having a holiday at the sea. We prefer the little pool of water to the ocean before us. We prefer the muddy clay of the earth to the whole earth itself. And yet, not only are we far too easily pleased, but we are far too easily pulled away from lasting joy. Like a child who was just given a shiny new bike, sits on it and says, vroom, vroom. But who quickly moves to the box that the bike came in. God's people are too often pulled away to the pleasures of the world after enjoying the initial brightness of salvation from the Lord. What is God to do for us ADD Christians? For those of us, all of us, whose attention moves from the bright joy of the Lord to pick up the shiny piece of glass on the ground. Well, sometimes he allows us to be cut by that piece of glass because he loves us. Because of God's faithfulness, he devotes a people to himself and disciplines the people. In line with his divine character, the Lord reminds us through this text that these people belong to him. He reminds them of what he has done for them before he disciplines them, so that their discipline 
so that our discipline will be seen in its proper light. Last week, we saw God as the Redeemer, the second person of the Trinity, the angel of the Lord as their Redeemer. It was He who brought them out of the land of Egypt. It was He who guided them in the wilderness. It is He who sticks with them every step of the way. And here we have God again as their Redeemer, as not just one generation, not just the the God who redeems a single generation and then leaves that generation alone and doesn't commit himself to other generations. This is the God of generations. The Lord God was the God of their fathers, the fathers of Israel. And on and off, the Israelites would take great pride in their history, in whose they were. You remember the offense that the Jews took when Jesus challenged their right to be in so rich a redemptive line. He acknowledged that they were ethnically children of Abraham. But spiritually, they were children of the devil. And they said to him, how dare you, Jesus? How dare you question our sonship? We are children of Abraham. And he said, if you were children of Abraham, you would do the things that Abraham did. You would believe in me. But they took great pride. And they thought that they were never enslaved, apparently forgetting all of their, a lot of their history. They took great comfort that they were not alone, that they had fathers and forefathers and others that God was committed to. To be free, or to be, to be from the ancient patriarchs, it is quite the honor. To be a child of Abraham, counted among the other stars, counted among the other grains of sand. What a blessing, what a joy, what a privilege, what a grace. To be a child of Isaac, that faithful man who submitted himself to his father's submission to God. To say yes, Isaac is in my lineage. I am in his, his. I am in his. To be a child of Jacob who blessed his sons in faith and who bowed his head in worship. We ought to take great pride in where we come from. Because to be in this line is really to be in the line of God's grace. The nation of Israel knew the Lord God to be their God of redemption. Because they had Abraham for a father, the Lord would call them out of slavery. Because they had Jacob for an ancestor, the Lord would multiply them into 12 tribes. Because they had Joseph for a father, for a leader, the Lord would show them favor, even in slavery. Because they had Moses for a mediator, the Lord would mediate grace upon grace for them. Because they had Joshua for a conqueror, the Lord graciously gifted them a promised land. Because they had the Lord God as their Savior, He would spare them nothing when it came to salvation. Already we see the point of application that the jealous Lord is faithful to deliver His people from sin and devote them to Himself. This is their identity, this is our identity. How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, that he has laid for all his children. There is no greater comfort 
than knowing whose we are, if we are the Lord's. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a treasured possession of God, dear ones. And you you don't have to work your way up the system so that you can become chosen one day, so that you can become a priest one day, so that you can become finally precious in God's sight, a treasured possession because of what you've done. No. You are already, because Christ made part of a chosen race, you are already given the royal priesthood. You're already made a treasured possession. Not because of you, but because of the great Redeemer, our God. No one, no less you, can take a cement grinder to the rock-solid foundation that the Christ has laid as cornerstone. You are living stones that do not pass from, from life to death on a divine whim or from human weakness. On Christ, our solid rock, we stand. All other ground is sinking sand. It is this ground of identity that we and the world surely question from time to time. The world has no problem challenging our trust in him over and over again. They'll just say through media or even directly just say to you face to face, look at the evil. Look at what's going on in the world. Look at how you are suffering. And sometimes we buy into that and we say, yes, look at the evil that is happening to me. Look at how I am suffering. I thought I was a chosen race. I thought I was a treasured possession. Is this how God treats his treasured possessions? Well, sometimes he does. Look at the suffering. Look at the evil. Look at all the bad. But none of that changes whose we are. None of that challenges our identity. None of that challenges that we belong to Christ. Let us always look to Christ. The promise fulfilled by his blood for not only whose we are, but in whom we are. He is ours and we belong to him. No one, no less you, can take an axe to the blood-stained cross on which he hung. This is who we are. What do Christians do in response to this new identity by being part of the God of generations, God of our fathers? What do we do but attend to the Christ in whom our redemption rests? Calvin lived in Poitiers, probably butchered the French there. Joan, you can correct me later. He lived for probably no more there than a year in 1534-35. But he would, 20 years later, be able to build on his brief visit to the brothers there to encourage them in the faith. He writes to a group of believers who had to worship in secret because of persecution. They had become Protestant, and not everyone was happy with that. In particular, the Roman Catholics did not like that these Protestants could uh, they didn't want them to move about freely in their land, worship what they thought was a false gospel. Of course, this is common in the world today. People have to worship God in secret, but they worship God, albeit in secret. And Calvin, not being 
insensitive to their situation. He doesn't say, go ahead and not worship God because, hey, there's persecution coming your way. He commends them to the, to the continual worship of God, to the continual assembly for the purpose of worship. You just don't need to shout it on the rooftop that where you're going to meet. And he says, confirm yourselves in the faith of the gospel. Do not deprive yourselves of the blessing of calling upon God together in one accord, receiving sound doctrine and good exhortation. Or in the words of Paul, do not neglect the assembly of the saints as is the habit of some. Why would we not neglect this assembly? Because it is here. It is on this day that we reflect on what God as our Redeemer has done for us and, get, and ascribe to Him that worship due only His name. We must not allow the fear of persecutions to hinder us from seeking the food of life. What do we fear more? Whom do we fear more? How much more freely, dear saints, ought we then to gather to worship God? You know, when you love someone, it's hard to stay away from that person, isn't it? Especially in the initial phases of the relationship. I've got to be with that person every moment of the day. I hate talking on the phone. Just, I will. Okay, it's part of my job, okay? But just confession here, I don't like talking on the phone. But when I first dated Elizabeth, I was on the phone for hours. I, I, I was happy to do that because I wanted to get to know this person. When will I see you again is the final hopeful question that the man asks his date. Maybe they, they, they have a, a morning coffee date before they both go to their jobs, and he asks, well, can I see you again tonight? I know I'm seeing you now, but I want to see you again tonight. When you love your brothers and sisters in Christ, do you, do you not look for more times to be together? Where your friendships can be formed, where your friendships can, can grow to flourish. When you love Christ, you don't have to ask, when can I see you again? You already know. Every Lord's Day. Every morning. Most evenings on the Lord's Day, you get to come and worship God. This is the joy of the Christian. We, we wake up in the morning astounded. I get to see Jesus this morning? This isn't, a, this isn't a sick joke. I get to see Jesus? Absolutely you do. You go home, you have your lunch, you say, I get to see Jesus this evening? I get to see him twice on the Lord's Day? Absolutely you do. Why, of course, you are God's child. He is yours. You are his. I was recently reminded of one of, one of the things that Martin Lloyd-Jones, great preacher, said in his book on preaching. The problem in the book of Acts wasn't the apostles trying to get people to come and worship. It was sending them out. This is the climax of the Christian life on earth. It's the Lord's Day. It's the first day of the week. This is our mountaintop experience. We ascend heavenly Zion by the Spirit, and we offer Him praise. We hear His word. We pray to Him. 
Christ intercedes for us. We take a meal with him. There's nothing better. There's literally nothing better on earth than the heavenly worship that we have every single Lord's Day. And the marvel, the marvel of this grace is that he loves to see you more than you him. Can you imagine that? We have every reason. You count the ways, Genesis to Revelation, every reason to want to come and see him. He has given us no reason to refrain from his presence. None whatsoever. And how many reasons have we given him to say, I don't want to be with you? Oh, the sins that amount daily. Our sins of thought and word and deed. Our cold spirits. We give him every reason to say, I don't want that worship. I don't want to, I don't want to be with you. Do you hear what you, do you see what you did this week? Don't you dare come in my presence. He doesn't do that. He loves us. His compassion overflows into our hearts by his spirit. And he says, come. You can still come. Because I sent my son to die for you. Come on. Such amazing grace. And our sin and the sufferings in the world work hard together to pull us away from him. And out of love, our Father disciplines us when our conduct calls for it. That's what we see here in verses 12 and 13. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. Twice here in these, in these verses, Samuel tells us that Israel abandoned the Lord. This doesn't mean that Israel said, you know, no more Yahweh, no more Lord for us. He saved us from Egypt, and that's all he's good for. Thank you for that salvation, but now we're on to bigger and better things. It's, it's not like that. They were glad to give the Lord his lip service. They were glad to even give him his daily allotment of sacrifice. They treated him like many a child treats the animal that he was given and which he promised to take care of for the life of the animal. This little creature has the child's undivided attention. Here, here, dog, you get all the food you need, all the water you need. Here, have some treats. Have a walk. Let me clean up after you. Let's have playtime and and snuggles and kisses and, and more and more treats. But the cuteness of the animal wears off. And the burden of caring daily for its needs taxes the young one. And he soon asks his parents to take over. Oh, to be sure, the child will play with the little thing from time to time. But undivided attention is too much for so small a creature. It is easy to leave behind when another is added, as we have here. They have bow down to the Baals and the Ashtoreth. That's just the plural of Baal and Ashtoreth. Israel left the exalted Lord for a lower Lord, a false Lord, and his wife, Baal and Ashtoreth. 
Baalism, in a nutshell, is, is ascribing power, deity, to nature, uppercase N. Baal was the top Canaanite god, god of the storm, god of fertility. Baal, powerful though he was, he needed another, Ashtoreth, his consort. And in order for the dead winter to spring into crops, Baal and Ashtoreth had to come together to do their deed, and soon crops would spring forth. But apparently, they were either reluctant lovers or too old to come together without some stirring from below. And so humans were needed to get them going. They had to be excited by us below. You remember Elijah when he was mocking the prophets of Baal. They had to get him going. They had to get his attention. And so, Baal, and so uh, Elijah mocks them. Well, maybe he's on a journey. He, he, it's too far. He's too far. He can't hear you. You got to cry louder. Maybe he's in the bathroom. Don't bother him. Maybe he's asleep. You got to wake him up. Cut yourself. Cry out. Where is he? He's nowhere because he's not a God. But that's their, that was their mindset. They had to drum up enough acknowledgement that they really believe in Baal for him to say, okay. I'll give, you some, I'll give you some crops. Dale Ruff Davis says, There was no let go and let Baal thinking among them. Instead, their watchword was, Serve Baal with gladness, all ye glands. So temple prostitution was essential to the ongoing fertility of the gods and so the, the earth. But in this kind of situation, who really is Lord over creation? Man is. Man is Lord over nature. Humanism, again, reigns. Humans determine these gods. They're the ones who force the gods, essentially, to act on their behalf. And Israel functionally left the Lord God who created heaven and earth. She left the Lord, or she left the love of the Lord for the lust of another. This worship, this kind of worship becomes a means of getting what man wants not giving what God is owed. What can I get from God rather than what do I owe Him? And so worship in this kind of system is just one religious way of man serving himself, treating God as a vending machine. Just put in the money, punch the right code, and you get your, you get your snack. You know, sometimes the vending machine jams, so sometimes the gods are not going to um, going to work. But sometimes we have that same mentality, do we not? If I just read enough chapters of the Bible a day, God's going to keep loving me. If I don't forget all the prayer requests that have been given me, pray, intercede for all these people, then God's going to say, yes, you're... Now... Now you are my treasured possession. Before you weren't. Now you are. Look at you go. Just pray enough. Or hey, if I just go to evening worship, because you know that's twice. Now the Lord will really look favorably upon me. Just plug in the right thing, and out comes the divine blessing. 
What can God do for me? That's the mentality of Baalism. That's the mentality of humanism that so often has plagued the Christian church. So Israel served herself and tragically her own enemies for her ruin. Verse 14 says, So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. False worship provokes fierce wrath. To do what is right in your own eyes is to do what is evil in the eyes of God. The triune God, who is worthy of his jealousy, cannot but be provoked when false worship is concerned. And surely we would expect nothing less than fierce anger for the the husband who catches his wife in bed with another, or whose wife suggests adding a third to the marriage bed. Certainly we could sympathize with a man who is angry in that kind of scenario. He's rightly jealous because he loves his wife. Pluralism provokes divine anger. Adding more gods, more idols, provokes divine anger. Our heavenly groom is rightly angry. God is no dog. He's not a creature. He's not a trifle. He's not a temporary pleasure that we should get bored with. He is our creator. He is our redeemer. He is holy, holy, holy. And what was intended as a feel-good piece, it's a story I read of a man and a woman in Tennessee, and they are praised by many for cheating on their spouses and starting a new life together because, hey, both of them were part of bad marriage. So that gave them license to cheat on their spouse and start a new life together. And this happened in uh, a Walmart in Tennessee. It's not a a diss on Walmart, Um, but these things happen anywhere. Chelsea says, I was working in the hair salon, and Brad was the store manager. I had a problem with with ants in the salon and had to get Brad to sort it out for me. So it seems pretty innocent. And she admitted that at first she thought he was... Uh, a jerk. He was not a kind man. But, you know, you work together and you get to know one another and she came to like him and, and he came to like her. And so they started a relationship and were soon thereafter busted by one of Chelsea's family members because it's a small town and she had followed Chelsea in her car one day and found them uh, together. Chelsea said, I had no choice but to tell my husband It wasn't well-received. How about that for an understatement? It wasn't well-received. Well, pray. pray, pray. I'm thankful to God that it wasn't well-received. Can you imagine the kind of husband who's like, yeah, okay. Good. I was looking for a way out, too. She temporarily felt terrible, but she admits she was soon relieved to be over the marriage. And people spoke against this action, of course. Many praised her, but others spoke against what she had done and what he had done, and she said, it all took a toll on my mental health. She was distressed because people were not praising, not everyone was praising her behavior. 
The couple said that before they got married, they, quote, recommitted their lives to God and practiced celibacy until they were wed. So that's a consolation. But I do wonder the kind of God to whom they recommitted themselves. The daughter in Brad's first marriage is just two years younger than Chelsea, and she admitted that it was hard at first getting used to dad's, quote, unconventional relationship. But we usually call that adultery, right? But now, as time has marched on, they view each other as best friends. It's good to be friends with people, of course, but, you know, under this scenario, that's not commendable. And because this couple is uh, perfectly fit to give counsel, their parting counsel was this. Follow your heart. It knows exactly what it wants. Don't be afraid to see where life takes you. There it is. If you follow your heart, it might just take you into the bed of another. Now, are you righteously provoked in body and soul when you hear of this kind of accepted infidelity? I hope so. Like Paul, are our spirits provoked by the false worship surrounding our city? But even more, are we provoked by our own sinfulness, by our own infidelity? The, Ch- the Chelsea's and the Brad's are, you know, they're out of the world, they're in the world too, but they're also in the church. Stu- the stuff that moved them to sin is the same stuff in our hearts. But we are quick to leave. We are quick to have another idol. We're so faithless to our God. Not one day can you say, yes, I was perfectly faithful to God. I did everything I should have done. I said all the right things. I had all the right affections. I had all the right inclinations. I had all the right actions. Like the Puritans, are we provoked by how soon we add another idol to our harem? Samuel Rutherford says, as many lusts in us as many gods. We are all God makers. And who can forget Calvin's Image that we, our hearts are idol factories, just pumping out idol after idol, and then bowing down to it, saying that this is the thing that satisfies us. This is the thing that we need. How, how prone we are to wander, to leave the God we love. But let us all, like David, when he has shown his sin by the prophet Nathan, say, we are the man. Forgive us, Lord. The jealous Lord is faithful to discipline his wayward people in devotion to himself. Verse 15, whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. God is faithful to his covenant, and in that covenant are warnings, warnings for disobedience, and promise of blessing for obedience. And so they were plundered. The Lord allowed Israel to get cut from that shiny piece of glass. He allowed them to be plundered by the people that they had permitted to be with them. He worked it out so that those Israel sought for refuge 
left them only refuse, a pile of trash. All of the goods have been taken away. And not only were they left without, with their goods taken, but the Lord, using Israel's lovers against her, actively pursued her temporary harm. Whenever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm. That's not to say that he abandoned the covenant. No, they did. They're still in it. But as part of the covenant, because he is faithful to them, they will be disciplined. You can imagine the effect that this would have. The text says at the end, they were in terrible distress. This persistent pursuit filled their spirit with terrible distress. And they ought to thank God for it. They ought to thank God that they are not comfortable with their sin and with the idols. It was good that Chelsea experienced some mental health problems when people said that what she was doing was wrong. It's too bad she didn't listen. It's truly tragic. Surely it is lamentable. In the case of Israel, it was, t- it was temporarily terrifying for them to feel the effects, for her to feel the effects of her adulterous abandonment. But graciously, the Lord, the lover of her soul, didn't leave her. 2.15 is not the end of Judges. And it never says here that God is, is done with Israel. He remains committed to them. And sometimes that means their discipline. He graciously sometimes gives us over to a soulish distress. When we leave the Lord, we we fill in the gap with these false fillers. We do so only to our distress, only to our ruin. If we do not purge the evil from within us, the Lord will hound us for our holiness. If we do not cut off the head of Dagon in our hearts or step on our pet Nehushtans, our God will discipline us whom he loves. If we do not flee from idols, our loyal Lord will show how odious these are, how ruinous they really are. You might get caught looking at pornography. You might be Caught drinking one too many beers. You might be caught cursing your brother. You might be caught gossiping about your sister. You might be caught cheating on your taxes. Or letting that curse word slip out. And now your child has been taught by you how to curse. Well, thank God for it. Thank God that he didn't leave you. Praise God for the cut from that piece of glass. If through it, God will draw us closer and closer to the cross of Christ for our consecration, for for our mortification of sin. Our groom has promised to present us to himself spotless and without blemish. And no one, no less you, will stop him from loving you. Davis says, the Lord's faithful anger is the price we pay for being loved. 
He will cut away at the disease and pierce ever deeper into the heart. He only designs your dross to consume and your gold to refine. He will cause a terrible distress so that one day we will be in awestruck peace. What wondrous love is this, O my soul. Let's pray. Our God, we marvel at how committed to us you are. We are so thankful that nothing can shake that solid foundation, that no one, that we cannot take ourselves away, that we will not be snatched out of your hand, Father, your hand, or Son, and that we will forever be sealed, guaranteed by the Spirit. We pray, God, that this foundational truth, this security will not be license for sin, so that grace may abound. May it never be that we might continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus, that we would grow in our commitment to him as he remains committed to us. In his name we pray, amen.